long story short, he found that reciprocity. Reciprocation. Hang on, I'll have to read it. Reciprocation. Reciprocation? In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Amy and I'm joined by Hunter. So I always ask you how you are. Yes. Instead, how many breakfasts this week did you eat Ferrero Rocher's? Uh, ooh. Because that's a big box that you've got. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big box. I bought I bought a box in preparation for Christmas thinking I'd give it to someone. No. That has not eventuated. You have. You gave me I, a couple. I think, I, to, be, to be honest with you, I've tapered off the last couple of days because it was getting a bit too much. I think I've sort of abstained the last couple of days. Breakfast but, overload. Yeah, but there certainly was a number of days where there was maybe two to three prayer shares with a cup of tea. Excellent. <laughs> so my favourite thing about this season, chocolate for breakfast. <laughs> so today we're not returning to Christmas, but it still feels very festive. I'm looking at a tree, so that's why yes, I'm that's focused on the chocolate. So today we're going to talk about fear of flying. So we thought we'd keep it pretty narrow this week and talk about something that's that's really common. Yeah, and probably people are flying currently yep. around this time of year, uh, you know, on holidays, going to and from places to see family. And so we thought it might be an interesting thing to have a look at. Yeah. Do you, do you have any anxieties about flying? No, no. It's the only thing that I have that's a sort of related anxiety is that I always get paranoid about my passport mm-hmm. but, but, and have like nightmares in the days leading up to flying that I've left my passport at home. But there's nothing about the actual flying experience. And I wonder if that's because I flew right from when I was really little, mm. it's like right from an infant, whether it was just kind of treated as normal. I mm. don't know. Well, I've, I flew when I was younger. Mm. So I would say now... As an adult, the only time I get particularly anxious is takeoff. Yeah. And like, I think I used to worry about landing as well, but like takeoff, I worry about because I'm like, right, logically. Yeah. We, this haven't, is... we haven't tested this plane out. Whereas yep. like landing, I'm kind of like, well. We pi- got here. Pi- pilots, <laughs> pilots can probably get us down. Yeah. <laughs> so, Interesting. Yeah. Like that, that, and and uh, that's the way I've rationalized it. So. Yeah. I don't particularly like turbulence. That's probably yeah. the only. And I think also takeoff is there's, there's, there's very unusual sensations. So. Yeah. Which is part of what I'll talk about a little bit about yeah. sort of physical sensations that, yeah. Backwards and forwards. Uh, oh, we won't tell horror stories. No. Because I, I think that's a bit unfair to listeners like who may actually be sensitive to it. But I certainly I had an experience when I was traveling where there was a girl, I was in Thailand, I think, and there was a girl on the very, very anxious sitting across the aisle from me. And so I just talked to her, like mm. just completely distracted her. And as soon as like I stopped talking to take a sip of drink or whatever, yep. she would get anxious immediately. Yeah. And then and then if I kept her talking so I just kept it was enough talking. distraction. Yeah, because her, bo- her partner was not able to kind of distract her in a in a unique enough way. To yeah. Do it. So yeah. Uh, so so with the paper I'm about to talk about, that kind of got me thinking about well, how do these phobias develop hmm. and how these anxieties develop? Because uh, we we call fear of flying a specific phobia. Yeah. Uh, would be the correct diagnostic term. Yeah. So is there a particular word? Um, I didn't look it up. There, there must be, but it wasn't used in the articles that I read. Yeah, there's a, there's a great list of oh phobia that names. that list is amazing and it's really specific. Like I can't remember the name of the one that's a fear of getting peanut butter stuck on the roof of your mouth. That's exactly what I was about to <laughs> say. So, so that that might sound really really weird, but that's actually a fear of choking. Yeah, really, is what that's about. Yeah. So yeah, it's really interesting, and they're quite. They've each got really specific individual names. Mm. Yeah. So and so the thing about phobia for fear of flying is that it's not all the same thing. So fear of flying 
is this generic umbrella term, yeah. but it could be fear of a whole lot of stuff that can happen whilst flying. So yeah. like getting anxious during turbulence, seeing the plane before you take off, all these kinds of things where creates a bit of a problem with research and also with mm. treatment as well. So we say like if you think about a needle phobia, yeah, it's, it's pretty specific, yeah, right. So I mean, the needle going in causing pain or yeah. causing fainting or all that kind of stuff. There's a couple of variations, but it's fairly limited. Narrowing, yep. Yeah, so whereas fear of flying is quite broad. Mm. So the paper I'm going to talk about is called Ways of Acquiring Flying Phobia, published in Depression Anxiety in 2016, and it's by Bettina Schindler and colleagues. It's a German study. Mm-hmm. So background, so fear of flying is a common phobia, depending on how you define it you can get sort of estimates of up to 40% of the population. Yeah. They talk about in this paper, there's a lifetime prevalence of 13.2%, so okay. which is yeah. pretty high. Pretty high, yeah. So what they wanted to do with this paper was to research conditioning as a pathway to acquiring a phobia because like research into how this, how fear of flying actually develops in individuals is not well known and sort mm-hmm. of relatively scarce. Yeah. And the problem the problem with that is that if you don't have a good understanding of why something happens, then your treatments may not be as effective. They're sort of not targeting the right element. Yeah, yeah. that's it. And so people can say, Oh well this treatment's really, really good, but actually maybe we don't really know why and there's mm-hmm. a, you know, and maybe you can make it better and all that kind of stuff. So give you guys a bit of a theory. So traditionally an anxiety disorder or a phobia is a learned fear response to a stimulus after a frightening event with that uh, or frightening experience with that stimulus. So classical conditioning has been the most popular theory for this. So mm-hmm. if you've ever heard of Pavlov, Pavlov dogs, I think there's a band called Pavlov dogs. That's not, <laughs> not them. So, so Pavlov is this Russian, I think he was a physiologist. Yeah. Yeah. And so what he did was he got a dog and, Every time he presented food to the dog, he would bang a bell mm. and measure the saliva yep. produced. Because if you show food, you salivate involuntarily. And then what he did was he would then ring, do that a few times and then he would ring the bell and the dog would salivate. Yeah. And so they'd be producing a physiological response to a, a stimulus, right? That was previously unrelated. Previously unrelated. Yep. So like if you smell food... Mm. You would salivate, but hearing a bell, you wouldn't, no. right? So, and then what happens is that over time that extinguishes. Hmm. So that's classical con- classical conditioning. If you ever do first year psychology or year twelve psychology, you'll have to do write essays on that. Yeah. So that kind of stuff. But it's actually in in certain in anxiety and trauma stuff, it's actually very useful theory to understand. So in fear of flying, you associate a possibly threaten threatening event, say heavy turbulence. So it's may be threatening, but like heavy turbulence can produce a fear response because yeah. you're kind of getting shaken around, you don't really know what's going on. And then what happens is the person then associates that fear response with actually a neutral stimulus, like such as just seeing an aeroplane yeah. or being on a flight that... So it sort of becomes generalized, generalized to... like to that kind of thing. Any so, potential so plane-related. Yeah, so the example I was talking about, which is, you know, flying above the Gulf of Thailand or whatever, and it's still and perfect, yeah. nothing's wrong, but she was incredibly anxious. So... Yeah. And I think in that case, she'd actually had a bad, really, really bad turbulence and that's how she'd gotten triggered. Right, okay. So, but they, there's other ways of developing anxiety disorders. So, they generally talk about three three pathways. So, there's a classical conditioning response. There's the vicarious learning route, which mm-hmm. is, so basically that would be you would develop a flying phobia after, say, sitting next to someone who has a serious fear reaction. Yeah. So, you would learn to be anxious about it. From sort of modeling. For modeling. Yeah. That kind of stuff. And vicarious learning in a lot of... Like we do a lot of vicarious learning. Yeah, it's it's a really really powerful and I think often underestimated kind of thing. And mm. you think about the discussions nowadays around the role of gender stereotypes or whatever, yeah. and that's all vicarious learning. Absolutely. So, yeah. and then this other the third account is like informational. So which is like say watching too many TV broadcasts about plane crashes. Mm-hmm. FYI, air crash investigations, <laughs> fantastic TV show. <laughs> But developing a phobia or just in general? It's just really, really great. Like I downloaded it. Although I did I did watch a few too many in a row and that, mm. that started to get a little yeah. A little more. A little much. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and actually I was backpacking many, many years ago and 
I was, I was in Washington DC. Mm. It was a bit bored. It was a rainy day or something. So I was like, I'll go go to a movie. And I went and saw this. There's like a Ben Affleck when Paltrow movie called Bounce. Yep. Right. And like the the yep. the, the her husband cr- dies in a plane crash. Yep. And and then like three hours later, I was like on a plane <laughs> flying somewhere. Yeah. I was like, I got yeah, on a plane. I'm like that was like, not a that was not not a, smart a good idea. No. <laughs> so anyway, so suggestions from literature say that each of these three possible routes could play a role mm-hmm. but it's not really clear as to how much say the classical conditioning is responsible and part of the problem is that there's methodological differences about you know say how do you define an event in the air that sort of limits comparison as also they wanted to you know in different sample groups and that kind of stuff and they wanted to do in this study a, have a control group so they did what's called a matched paired control study. It's a very impressive style of study. Mm-hmm. So they've got 30 patients with a specific phobia of flying, as according to the DSM-4. And then they had 30 healthy controls, so people who didn't have a, this phobia, who were pairwise matched regarding age, sex, and education with a clinical sample. Okay, this yeah. idea of trying to get a, a, a control group that roughly matches mm. the, the non-control group. So by the doing that, you're ruling out the influence of any of those... Factors, yeah, well, you're limiting in theory, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in, you can start to think about well, well, should we be matching on this and that and the other? But you could go on forever, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, usually, you know, I mean, doing what they've done is pretty good. Mm. I don't normally talk about how they recruit, but it was interesting. They recruited people through uh, people who were interested in a fear of flying weekend seminar, so mm-hmm. that had CBT techniques and stuff like that. And then at the end, a flight in Europe at the end of the seminar, <laughs> which I was like, oh, yep. wow, that'd be great. No, for them, it'd be terrifying. But Yeah, and it sounds like it's very similar to um, to my study, which accessed a similar program. <laughs> <laughs> Although for theirs, it was a return flight within a day. Yeah, right. So, Up and back. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> so they interviewed participants on the mini DIPS, which sort of diagnoses DSM disorders. They had a measure of anxiety disorders interview schedule, and then they also had a fear of flying history interview. So this had sort of rated fear of flying, the years that they had had it, had it changed over time, was there a triggering event, were they having stressful life events at the time of the frightening event, did an important person in their life have a flying phobia? There was a question about that. Questions around sort of exposure or to media, whether that triggered their fear of flying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, remembering a specific crash or yeah. something like that, right? It also completed the state trait anxiety inventory. Mm-hmm. So results, so they had 50% of phobic and 50% of the contr- 53% of the controls reported a frightening flight experience at some point. Okay. So roughly... Similar, even, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And none of them seem to be life-threatening. Mm-hmm. So they're just sort of felt as well. So there might be like technical problems or a go-around or storms or turbulence, unexpected yeah. landings, stuff like that. So what they did find was that phobic patients had a higher rate of panic attacks in a plane, mm-hmm. but no other differences. So, I mean, that so sort of that could fits. be a... It fits, but also a panic attack on a plane could be a conditioning event. Yeah. So if you, you get a panic attack for whatever reasons, lots of reasons why you can get a panic attack. Yeah. And then you could then develop that could a then be frightening, yeah. Yeah. So they found no differences on intrafamilial model learning. So mm-hmm. this is like, no, so having a family member with it. So only two patients reported that this was a triggering event okay. for their phobia. But 70% of phobics compared with 37% of controls, so double, mm-hmm. felt influenced by media information about crashes and flight accidents. Okay. But only 3 or 9% said it triggered their phobia. So there was this like more that they're mentioning the influence of media after the phobia had started. Yeah. So sort of like the media supports that phobia, like maintains yeah. the phobia rather than kicks it off. Yeah, so they talk a little bit later in the article, they sort of say, oh, well, that 67% of the patients said their fears have gotten worse over time, which if you've got a sample of phobic patients, you're yep. not, you haven't got people who've recovered from that phobia. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's yeah. a bit of a biased, biased sample. But what they're sort of saying in this is, and then they sort of tied it to this media stuff and sort of saying, well, maybe there's this vicious cycle, you know, if you're afraid about flying, you might want to get more information about flying, but all the information that's in the news will it's be negative. negative. Yeah. It won't be like, oh, and, you know, 200 planes landed safely yeah. today at the airport. Yeah. 
I kind of I thought they actually missed out a, a quite a clear explanation would be that when you've got an anxiety problem, then you become like you have this selective attention to threat. Yeah. So you pick that out. Mm. The, the example I use with my clients is like so. I, I would ask you, Amy, what color car do you have? Silver. Silver, and it's a big car, small car. Small. Small. And so when you bought that car, did you suddenly notice? Yeah small silver cars of that particular brand on the road. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, and so yeah. this is kind of this, but you're not actually looking out for them. No. You're unconsciously processing that. And so when you have an anxiety problem, then like if you're anxious about a particular thing, then you filter the environment mm. unbeknownst to you according to that thing. Because yeah. it's, And then you think about that, it's protective, right? Yeah. So like if, you, if, if you're a caveman, you previously got attacked by a wild animal that made a particular sound mm. then the caveman that hears that sound and has a faster anxiety reaction to that to get away mm. survives survives yeah. and one goes oh that's a pretty cat yeah eaten by a tiger <laughs> yeah um doesn't have any kids so yeah. th- that's the kind of way that i explain it to yeah. my clients so and i think they kind of missed that but but i like but i like this idea of exposure to media would reinforce it though mm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, totally. What was interesting, they said stressful life events seem to have, there may be a link to that. So basically they said that 60% of patients reported experiencing stressful life events at the time of development of the phobia mm-hmm. as compared to 19% in the control group. So interesting. So this idea that maybe you're stressed, have a lot of stuff going on, you might have a higher baseline fear level mm-hmm. and so you might be more vulnerable to developing a specific phobia. Yeah. At the time, and so maybe if you have, then have some bad events or something. Yeah. You could sort of, you could start to sort of go, oh, okay. You can start to see, tell a story about how that might develop, mm. that kind of stuff. But that it, sort of um, diathesis stress model. Di- diathesis, di- diathesis. So takeaways: uh, frightening experiences seem to be common. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, it's not normal to be in a plane. Like yeah. you're you're in a tube, a yeah. room that's flying. Yeah. And produces, and one of the other things is like it produces unknown body sensations, like pressure changes, turbulence, acceleration. Yeah. That don't really have any physical markets. Mm. Like, you know, if you're in a car, you yeah. can look out the window, you can see what's going on. You can see just how fast you're moving. Yeah. Or, and like, yeah. you don't really hear about people being afraid of, to get into cars mm. as compared to, say, being afraid yeah. of flying. You know, and I think there's also like a level of you feel like if something was happening in a car, you could yell out. Yeah. Well, there's a way out. Whether you could actually do it or not mm. is different. Like it's almost irrelevant. Yeah. Mentally, it's more about perception. Yeah, perception. So, but there is this question about, you know, well, why do some people develop a fear of flying? Why don't you know? Why does the fifty percent of the controls? Why did they not develop that fear? Hmm. When they suggest these results, say the classical conditioning may play a role, but it doesn't explain it fully. In so it's like if someone says they've got a fear of flying, that it might not be because. Something bad had happened. Yeah. Or it might not be that clear. But yeah, and then like I was talking about before about the higher stressful events and that kind of stuff. But they sort of say that they were cautioning this data because it's retrospe- retrospective. Yeah. And one of the things is you can kind of go, oh, well, this happened at that time. So therefore, this is why I got it. Yeah. It actually might not be. Might not have happened at the same time. Might not have been happening at the same time. There's a lot of studies that have gone back and investigated things, you know perspective kind of way and not found the link yeah. that everyone thought so i mean it could just be that phobics have a higher stress stressful lives or something yeah. which could be very possible in this study family influences seem to be that important but this role of the uh informational media having an influence on say perhaps reinforcing it mm. i mean they were sort of saying well that's very interesting perhaps helping people to reevaluate flying as a safe thing yeah with realistic stats so, off the top of your head, mm. take a guess. One major accident for how many flights? What do you reckon? Well, we don't hear of that many, really. Mm. Like you'd, of like sort of major plane crashes, you'd hear of less than, say, 10 a year. Mm. I reckon it would have to be in hundreds of thousands. So, they say one major accident for every 2.4 million flights. Wow. I mean, when you put it in that kind of terms, that's pretty stark. It's rare, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, the article I have actually fits quite nicely with yours because it's sort of about the mechanism of phobia 
and of fear of flying. So it's called The Moderational Role of Anxiety, Sensitivity and Flight Phobia by Bogard and Raid in the Journal of Anxiety Disorders in 2011. Uh, So... The focus of this article is trying to understand what mechanisms might be in place for developing fear of flying and with a particular focus on evaluating what's happening at the time of flying. So they highlight that, like you've mentioned, that there are a whole bunch of body sensations that happen while you're flying that are kind of um, unusual and unique to flying. So things like the impact of acceleration or turbulence, Mm. pressure changes. In particular, they emphasise that the changing pressure in oxygen can lead to hypoxia, so low oxygen saturation in people's blood, in more than half of people who fly. So that while they're up in the air, that people have been found to have oxygen saturation levels that are lower than 94%, which, yeah, so if they were on the ground, they'd receive oxygen to help support that. So it's kind of this... Like if you're in hospital, you'd be put on 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 a mask. Yeah, exactly. So it's something that's an unusual physical sensation, but which has symptoms that are quite similar to anxiety. So things like shortness of breath, heart racing, dizziness. And so they wonder whether sometimes the symptoms that people are experiencing, they're sort of um, misattributing to fear when actually it's something physically Mm. happening to them. So they speak a fair bit about how panic attacks are similar in that they're a sort of misinterpretation of body symptoms that often Mm. people become quite hyper aware of what's going on in their bodies, which then creates a sort of fear, which then leads to more physical symptoms that are associated with fear and this sort of vicious cycle. Yeah, so I mean, the way to think about panic attack would be, imagine you've got someone who's had a heart attack, they walk up a flight of stairs, yeah, and then they suddenly, what, what happens when you notice a flight of stairs? Your heart's racing because you've worked hard. Yeah. Like particularly if you've walked up it quickly and you sit, say if you sit, then sit down hmm. and go, and then they notice, they go, oh, my heart's racing. And then because they've had this bad experience, they might go, well, that's hmm. bad. And so they yeah. become apprehensive. Yeah. When they become then apprehensive, they get, bo- they get this body, more body symptoms of yeah. anxiety. And then they go, oh my God, I am having a heart attack. And loops around again. Yeah. So, so that's that kind of that missing, sort of feedback missing, loop. So, you, so there is a symptom, but then you your mind misinterprets it. Yeah. For whatever reason. Exactly. So anxiety sensitivity forms part of this. So that's anxiety sensitivity is the tendency to interpret anxiety related body symptoms as threatening. So it's that it's that bias. Um, it's highest in panic disorders and in generalized anxiety disorder and PTSD. It's also present in other anxiety disorders, but it tends to be milder and it's lowest in specific phobia, Mm. but it has been found in fear of flying. So it seems to depend on what the specific phobia is about whether anxiety sensitivity plays a role or not. Yeah. Well, the specific phobia is pretty broad. Exactly. Yeah. So previously when it's been examined in fear of flying, um, it's been done with questionnaires and with sort of student groups and general population rather than a clinical population mm. um, and always in that sort of... So you mean not like white female undergraduates from a middle class? Yeah, yeah. with no diagnosed. Yeah, <laughs> no diagnosed. <laughs> exactly. And always sort of retrospective, so asking yeah. about general patterns rather than what's happening right now. So their aim was to examine the relationship between anxiety sensitivity and uh, fear of flying in a clinical population. So people who had been diagnosed with a flight phobia mm-hmm. just before taking a flight. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they had 103 participants, 54 had a fear of flying and 49 were controls. The people who had the fear of flying were recruited from a similar program, it sounds like, than mm. what you mentioned. So two-day CBT program that had exposure as a core intervention on the second day. Uh, and so before they entered the program, they completed a bunch of diagnostic interviews and they were excluded if they also had a panic disorder, PTSD that was related to an aircraft emergency mm-hmm. or any other primary anxiety disorder. So if, if the core 
issue for them was a different type of anxiety disorder and the phobia was sort of a side issue. Mm. They're excluded from the mm. program. So they're trying to get a pure group. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So the program involves education on flight and aerodynamics and then psychoeducation on anxiety and the role of an- avoidance in perpetuating anxiety. And then on the second day, they take a return flight of one to two hours duration with two clinical psychologists on board as well. And the control participants took the same flight as the participants with mm. the anxiety disorder and it was just a general commercial flight mm-hmm. yeah so all participants had flown before about half of those in the phobic group uh last flew more than five years ago so they've been avoiding flying for quite some time wow. yeah in the control group about half had taken a flight a previous flight within a month so there was a real real difference and the number of flights was significantly higher for the control group it was about double across lifetime. What was interesting to me was that age at first flight was significantly younger for those with the phobia, which kind of goes against what I thought about kind of if you're exposed to it earlier, then maybe mm. you wouldn't be as scared. But yeah, yeah, because you, well, yeah, you'd wonder. Mm. It may be. Yeah, so the average age for the people with a fear of flying was in their teens, and then for the others, it was in sort of around 20, 22. Mm. for their first flight yeah so they in terms of measures they completed a flight anxiety situations questionnaire which was about a whole sort of all different parts of the flight that could cause anxiety mm, like i was just saying yeah bits that get me yeah a bit funny, other bits that are fine yep um they rated their current anxiety uh they completed a flight anxiety modality questionnaire which half of it Uh, gets people to rate their somatic sensations that they have while they're flying Um, and then an anxiety sensitivity index. Uh, They completed the measures prior to flying and then just before takeoff while they were in the aircraft, you know, sort of in that period while you're waiting for everyone to sit down, that sort of period, Mm -hmm. they indicated their current... Before or after the safety bit? Look, I didn't, I didn't check. Is that a bit interesting? Is like you go through the same things, like is that going to affect it anyway? Yeah, I imagine before because that's usually when they're kind of taxiing, isn't it? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, with the safety thing, calm or calm or peak your anxiety. I don't know. I reckon it would peak it because you're considering what you're doing it for. Yeah. (laughs) Have you seen my one of my favourite movies? Is a movie called Fight Club. And uh, they talk about when the oxygen masks drop down, yep. you're taking big gulps of yep. oxygen and therefore you become like serene and tranquil. Yeah. And it's your fate. And then he like points out, like he says, well, look at the emergency car. Look, they're all really, really happy. <laughs> yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So they took the measures uh, just before takeoff and they indicated their current anxiety and completed the um, questionnaire about body sensations Mm -hmm. so the previous ones they'd done before they got on the plane and then sort of to check in where they're at at that point uh so unsurprisingly people scared of flying had higher anxiety sensitivity current anxiety and somatic uh sensations than controls they did a hierarchical regression and there was a lot there was quite a few results in you know fantastic detail so i'm just gonna i'm gonna skip to the to the main yep. main point of it. So, 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 did they do another one? Like, was it just before takeoff? Just before takeoff. They take didn't off. do one like in the air. No, no, just before takeoff. Uh, so, what they found was that there is an interaction effect. So, that um, if you were high in anxiety sensitivity, so that sort of tendency to attribute physical sensations to something threatening, mm. uh, then the somatic symptoms that you experience while you're flying predicts your anxiety Mm -hmm. so that's only if if you're high in that whereas if you are low in anxiety sensitivity then those sort of somatic feelings that you experience aren't related to fear of flying Mm. yeah so there's something about that kind of tendency to evaluate things as threat that then contributes to the pathway so if you are sensitive to misinterpreting physical yeah. symptoms and you get as physical threatening symptoms, and you get physical symptoms then your fear of, then your, your fear anxiety of flying about flying is, is higher. higher yeah because if you don't have that 
then... Yeah, but even if you get somatic symptoms, it doesn't it, You don't yeah, link okay. those that two things sense. together. Yeah. So it makes sense. So their main focus was really highlighting that that this kind of suggests a bit of a shift in the focus of treatment because a lot of the treatment that's around currently is it's CBT, but it's focused on reappraising the risk of crash. Yes. Rather than reappraising what's going on in your body and how to know when that's dangerous or not. And so they suggested that perhaps a sort of pre-screening of someone when you were doing treatment would be to check their anxiety sensitivity. And if Mm. that was high, then to bring in things about reinterpreting those physical symptoms. I mean, and they also get back to developing a a good formulation and not treating everyone in the same... Everyone in the same thing was like saying, well, you know, because... One of the problems that people experience with mood and anxiety problems is that you say to somebody, oh, you know, I'm anxious about this. And they go, oh, well, you know, you don't need to worry because blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And they're, tr- they're giving you advice, but that advice is not specific enough to you. So it doesn't actually help. Mm. It doesn't fit exactly why you're anxious no. or what's. No. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, not, it's often, and also the delivery can be, can be very important, but, but frequently it's about it's not the right thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that was the thing when I was looking for an article for this topic, there seemed to be a lot on group therapy programs or things that were these kind of quick weekend things. And I've certainly seen them advertised. Mm. I don't know if you have. And Mm. I wonder whether uh, I'd be curious to read some of that stuff about how effective they are and whether it is sort of tailoring Mm. to what each individual needs or not. Yeah. I mean, my, I haven't done really much phobia work mm. but my gut feeling is often like it's sort of treated fairly standard approach yeah. you need to give you an understanding of what goes on we need to desensitize you and we need to stop the safety behaviors mm. and whereas what you're sort of saying is like well if someone's got a uh, high yeah, anxiety, anxiety sensitivity and they're getting body symptoms yeah. you need to address that yeah versus say because i wonder whether I mean, it'd be interesting to know whether, say you were high in anxiety sensitivity, you were treated in the way that addresses kind of, you know, assuming that there would be higher risk, all of Mm. that kind Mm. of focus. I wonder whether your anxiety would shift Mm -hmm. to a different, like, you know, a different phobia or a different or a, a generalized anxiety or something. Like, I wonder whether it actually would reduce that sensitivity or not. If that makes sense. If you were treated with like information, are you saying? I'm thinking like if you're treated with the standard treatment for fear of flying, sort of, you know, exposure stuff and focus on reappraising the risk, that sort of thing. If you've still got that anxiety sensitivity and you're still feeling anxious and misinterpreting those, those symptoms, Mm. then I wonder whether it would alleviate your fear of flying, but whether your fear otherwise, you know, might. I, I would wonder whether it would actually alleviate it. I'm not sure it would. Yeah, it might not. Because it, it might not be actually treating the right thing. Yeah, so it'd be just be a really, band-aid. Yeah, well, it might, it might not. It just might not be as effective mm. as, as the, the, other, like the other person who like, doesn't, have, doesn't have that. Doesn't have that so much. It's like really worried about. Risk. The risk, that kind of thing. Mm. So, but I mean, it'd be an interesting project. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Shall we take a break? Yes, let's do that. Yes. And we will come back with things we came across. Great. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just... This is part of the show where we say thank you. Thank you. It's where Amy becomes very self-conscious about the fact that... <laughs> We're we recording a rec- podcast. Did you podcast? know this, guide? Yeah. <laughs> it's only been 22 episodes. Let's see it. Yeah, but people are listening to us. <laughs> Actually, I, I tweeted it out on one of the uh, pods. It was listening from the Ivory Coast. Nice. Welcome. <laughs> yes. Bon oui. Bon oui. So you, very, very quickly, you can follow us on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, G-Shrinks Pod. <laughs> Are you checking out our website and also you could email us at twostringspod at gmail.com if you have any suggestions. So if you do have any thoughts, suggestions, email us or uh, tweet. tweet at us. We're still kind of getting the hang of it. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. But the more you tweet us, the more we'll get it. That's it. It's classical conditioning. Uh, actually, I think that's probably uh, operant conditioning. Yeah, don't question it. <laughs> 
It's some kind of conditioning and not just for our hair. <laughs> well, how long have you been waiting to use that? Like a lot? It just came into my head. Oh, dear. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome back. So for this last bit of the show, we like to do things we came across. So anything that we stumble across that catches our eye. Sometimes we go hunting. Sometimes it's a genuine stumble. It usually doesn't have any clinical relevance or limited clinical relevance. I would argue that mine has um, sort of political and social relevance, but I might be overstating it. We'll see. (laughs) Do you want to take us away first? I'll be the judge of that. (laughs) So... This is a bit of a carry-on from the Christmas yep. season. Uh, do you think Christmas cards? I used to. Rarely these days. Mm. Yep. So th- this Christmas season, I bought a set of Christmas cards, mm-hmm. like, you know, a pack of 10 or whatever. Yep. And, and so that's been really useful to have when I've needed to go, yeah, no, yeah, that person. But yep. like as, as sitting down and kind of doing the wholesale. No. Uh, I think I've done it before, but mm. I've definitely done it before. But it's certainly it's not a whole it. production. It was weeks, I, and it's and it's like kind of like what it got me thinking about is like, well, what's this process, this mm. social norm about? Kind of thing, and then who would I give it to? Yeah, that kind of stuff. So the, the paper is called Bar Humbug, <laughs> Unexpected Christmas Cards, and the Reciprocity Norm. I always screw up reciprocity. <laughs> you got it though. Okay. First time. The journal, and it's in the Journal of Social Psychology, it's 2016. It's mm-hmm. by Brian Meyer from the Gettysburg College. So this paper talks about the reciprocity norm, is which is the expectation that people help those who help them. It's this idea, you know, sort of like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So apparently many studies have examined this. And early work by Reagan in 1971. Not the president. Yeah. <laughs> I know he was an actor. I'm not sure he was an academic. <laughs> um, participants in a study supposedly about aesthetics were more likely to buy a raffle tickets from another participant if that participant first gave him a drink. Okay, that yeah. Kind of, although I said it's just bribery, but mm. anyway. <laughs> so I was kind of interested in this kind of thing. I was like really hoping that this would kind of crack open this case. Like, yeah. But it, it kind of goes a bit of a different direction, but I thought it was still kind of interesting because you don't often get to see papers published about things that kind of don't quite work. Yeah. So the back. So you were hoping that this paper would reassure your pre-existing kind of feeling that we exchange Christmas cards just... No, I was kind of interested as... I was trying to interested to understand like, you know, what are the kind of motivating factors mm. and, and like when, when do we do it, when do we not do it and that yep. kind of stuff. Yeah, okay. So... But it didn't take you there. No, no, okay. you, and you'll see why. study by Kunz and Walcott in 1976, which examined whether people would send a Christmas card to a complete stranger who'd sent them one. Mm-hmm. So they sent out... 578 Christmas cards to strangers and the return rate was greater for higher quality cards, higher <laughs> higher sender social status, lower receiver social status mm-hmm. and rural versus urban locations. And the overall response rate was 20%. Huh. So 20% of people... Replied to a Christmas card. And someone sent to them by you. a complete stranger. Hmm. Right? Interesting. That's pretty interesting. And then there was another study apparently in 2000... Same response rate, twenty percent. So this researcher was like, "This these studies have been commonly referenced in all sorts of places, mm. but he wanted to expand on this, it conceptually replicate it, and sort of expand on it. And he wanted to look at this idea of perceived similarity. So you know, people are more likely to help others, yeah, when they perceive them as similar to themselves. Yeah, we like people like us. That's it. Mm. So wanted to do that expecting the 20% response rate. So the study design, there were two cards, Merry Christmas, which was the religious card, or mm-hmm. Happy Holidays, the non-religious card. Mm-hmm. That's so-called War on Christmas. <laughs> Apparently Trump stopped that. Did you see that anyway? Oh, that's nice. Yeah, even though every, it's nice to have a project, isn't even, it? Even though Obama said it, yeah. said Merry Christmas at every Christmas. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. High horse. Um, so, and cards <laughs> were sent to two cities... In uh, Holland, in Michigan, mm. and Bremerton in Washington, which is I think Bremerton is actually just across the bay from Seattle. Okay, I've been there. 
similar size population income race, but different to the extent which one was religious, more religious. Holland was more religious than Bremerton. Mm-hmm. And he expected that more people from the Holland would, in Michigan, would send a return card when they received a religious one versus a non-religious one. Sure. So in the study, they sent out 800 cards to Holland and 400 cards to Bremerton. And they would, the people were randomly chosen from directories that they accessed through a, for a fee or something. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. They sent out high-quality cards using the researcher's first name as the uh, return address. Yep. And sort of randomly divided as to Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. Delivery addresses were handwritten. Mm-hmm. The return address on a sticker. Yep. Inside said, best wishes for a happy holiday or Merry Christmas, exclamation mark, and hand-signed with the researcher's first name. Yep. Mail 1st December, all participants received a debriefing letter after the holidays. Okay. And participants who sent a card were given a postage stamp and a $5 Amazon gift card. Huh. So if you did the right thing. You then got rewarded. You got rewarded. But you didn't know you were going to be rewarded. No, did not. Yeah. They had like a final sample of about 755 participants. Mm-hmm. What do you reckon the sample rate was? The response rate was? It was 20% before. I feel like... Well, because you said it didn't go as, as planned, my immediate thought was was that it was less than that. 15. Mm. 15 cards got back. So 2%. <laughs> Poor bugger. Oh, dear. That's tiny. Yeah, it's tiny. So, like, so obviously he couldn't do any of the analyses he wanted to do. I wonder what happened. So, so he got a couple of emails back from, from participants and some of them had said, a couple of them said, oh, look, it was a bit suspicious and troubling that, and, and, they, wa- and they were a bit worried because <laughs> a stranger had got their address. Yep. And, and so, and they were talking about, and he sort of said, well, you know, there's more, there's things like identity theft now in 2014 mm. versus like 1976, yep. which was not really a thing back then. So the other kind of possible hypothesis here was that before email, social media was part of everyone's life. Now we receive emails all the time asking us to donate, buy products. Yeah. And so those kind of communications just didn't happen in 1976. Mm, so, so it was sort of flooded with... Yeah, and so it might have made receiving a Christmas card from a stranger more compelling. Yeah. Like as a, an act that they need to reciprocate. Mm. And also like nowadays, you know, email, we can communicate incredibly easily. Yeah. He was saying it decreases the value of physical Christmas card. I don't know. I Do think you... kind of the opposite. Yeah. Well, I think for the opposite of someone, let's say this in a way that doesn't sound judgmental. If I receive a, I expect to receive a Christmas card from an elderly relative. Yes. But if I receive a Christmas card from someone who does have access to email or some kind of online media, I think that that's more special than if they send me an email saying yeah. Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Does I that would, make sense? I would agree with that. Yeah. Particularly, like, particularly in the age of social media. Absolutely. So, I mean, you can just do it on your phone. Like, yeah. It's like literally 10 seconds. Yeah. So he wanted to look at trying to tease this out in a second study. So he got Amazon workers to do fill out questionnaires. I mm-hmm. asked to imagine that they received a Christmas card from a complete stranger and then report the extent to which they'd send a return card and how suspicious they were would be about this card. So he got 499 participants. He found that reciprocation likelihood was significantly and negatively related to felt suspicion and threat mm-hmm. and email use, but not social media use. So basically, people seem less likely to correspond with someone they consider suspicious. Yeah. It appears that people who use email more frequently would be less likely to return a okay. Christmas card, which kind of makes sense. Yeah. Like, if someone sent me a Christmas card, maybe I would like. Yeah. Because like, if you get it like in a couple of days before Christmas, like, yeah. I'm not sending a Christmas card back. No. It's not going to get there. No. So, but I can send an email. Yeah. Interesting. Would you send a Christmas card back to someone who's like you didn't know? I don't no. Think I'd do it. No. I, I, yeah, I think it would be different if it was someone that I knew. That's different. But yeah. I wonder if also the way that sort of society has shifted as well. Because it very much was, I can remember being, you know, a kid and a teenager and whatever, and it being that if someone sent you a Christmas card, then you send them one back. Mm. Like, it was a... It's a done, it it's, was a done thing. It's what you do regardless of, of when it arrives. Whereas now it's kind of... It, it, that obligation doesn't seem to it's be there or that. Yeah. Anyway, what have you got Interesting. for Interesting. All right. My um social political statement. Um, <laughs> so I've got tooth fairy guilty of favouritism. 
by Pat Cass and colleagues. What's next? So Christmas, we've got Tooth Fairy, so we've got Easter Bunny next time. Well, see, this is how I found it because they mentioned Santa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this article was the winner of this year's Christmas competition in the Medical Journal of Australia. Mm-hmm. They have a really serious issue with the Tooth Fairy. And, I mean, it's kind of phrased in a we're curious kind of kind of way, but but they're quite sus about what the Tooth Fairy stands for. Yep, hang on, hang on. So, authors, are they... Uh, they are from Switzerland. Okay. But what profession? I'm not sure. I didn't say. Like dentists? Possibly. You know, like... Well, they do talk about dental hygiene, so possibly. Or are they like kind of, you know, family therapists, like development? Well, it's a medical journal, so... Oh, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't really mean anything. Uh, My guess would be dentists, given the emphasis on teeth that we're going to get to. (laughs) Okay, let's go Go for it, yep. So, they start by highlighting that the Tooth Fairy introduces children to capitalism at a very young age, which is very true. And Did you need to... Define the Tooth Fairy? No, no, I was going to say maybe a disclaimer if anyone is listening to people who want to keep the magic of Tooth Fairy hidden. Yeah, look... To maybe just skip over this segment. Yep, little ears, off you go. <laughs> All right, so I thought I'll I'll start with with a quote about the seriousness yep. of this. That tooth trading, in essence, is morally problematic. In contrast to Santa Claus, who rewards good conduct with presents, the Tooth Fairy teaches children that anything, even their own body, can be turned into cash. Mm. (laughs) Serious business. Previous research showed that Santa gave presents indiscriminately, but that when they've actually looked into it a bit more, it seems that he's far less likely to visit hospitals with children who have who are in deprived areas. So Santa has some kind of bias in terms of who he's willing to give presents to. And so they questioned whether the Tooth Fairy might also have some biases about how she's distributing her cash. And that given her impact, an analysis of her job performance is necessary. We agree with this so far? You've very serious <laughs> it's, it's very serious. So they... <laughs> So, in Switzerland, I learned that all school children receive yearly free dental exams. And so, they accessed school dental services where these children were attending and gave questionnaires to the parents. So, they had 1,274 questionnaires returned about children aged between about five and nine. Uh, 71% of parents reported a visit by the tooth fairy. So there's 29% who weren't getting any visit and all the children had lost at least one tooth. But only 47.8% of children believed in the tooth fairy. Uh, she tended to exchange money for the tooth or leave money next to the tooth. Worryingly, in just under 1% of cases, she took the tooth and didn't leave money. She left an average of 7.19 Swiss francs, which works out to be about $9.50 wow, in Australian dollars. That's what I thought. I'm thinking 50 cents tops. I can remember getting from the Tooth Fairy a gold coin. Yeah. So, which would be $1 or $2. Or $2. Yep. There, there was also, I don't know if you realise this, but if you lose a tooth interstate or overseas, then the Tooth Fairy visits twice, once in the foreign region, once when you return home. Oh, really? Yeah. It, yeah. My auntie who lived interstate made sure that it was very clear that we all knew that. Really? So, it was, it was double the pay. Because I definitely lost one on, on a trip that I was eight, and I think we were over Kazakhstan or something. Oh like well, then the and then I lost. She owes one. you. And then I lost another one. I think in like in a Paris taxi cab or something. Oh, so she owes you for two teeth, double I the money. Remember. I might have got a pound, which mm. would have been a, like would have been yeah. a lot of money back then. Anyway, anyway, so the other thing that was interesting was that parents reported that additional creatures also engaged in tooth trading. Really? Yeah. So five percent reported that the tooth mouse. <laughs> also was involved. So somehow it's more believable that a fairy yep. exchanges yep. exchanges teeth in a mouse. There were also ants, birds, dinosaurs, the dummy fairy, the tooth angel, Santa Claus, and dwarves. Each Santa Claus doesn't branch out. Oh well, yeah. So they calculated the odds of the fairy, the tooth fairy visiting, yep. and what impacted like the odds, odds of that happening. And so they found <laughs> that dental care was unrelated to yep. 
likelihood of visit. Mm. But older children, males and those who believed in the Tooth Fairy were significantly likely, more likely to have the Tooth Fairy visit. So if you're older, well, mm. okay, yeah, yeah. No, because that would make sense because parents would be more likely to think, well, if I give them money, they'll understand about that. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, are you implying that the Tooth Fairy speaks to parents? <laughs> well, I mean... But you never know who's talking to who. You never know who's talking to who. No. But like, you know, maybe the Tooth Fairy would be giving money to children who would have appreciation of what money is for. Yeah. Versus say if you give it to like, say a four-year-old. Yeah. If you give a four-year-old 10 cents or they $10. Don't. Like, they don't know. They understand that. So. That, that could be it. That's, the, that's what I meant. Yeah. It <laughs> was also a relationship <laughs> with the amount of money received and parent characteristics. Yeah. So not of the father, but the tooth fairy gave more money if the mother hadn't received any higher education or was from a non-Western country. Right. Mm, yep. So they highlighted that it, there seems to be a higher price in Switzerland for teeth than in the UK or the US. It's usually around a dollar or two in the UK and the US, so similar to, to what we have. So their argument was, given it's common knowledge that baby teeth are made of milk, hence why they're called milk teeth, and Switzerland is known for its milk products, <laughs> that perhaps the teeth are valued more highly. <laughs> is that like the final quote? Uh, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> There's also the concern that the fact that even Santa Claus has apparently doubled in tooth trading is irritating and poses a serious ethical challenge. It definitely does. It definitely does, yeah. So, I mean, they, they end with quite a uplifting quote. that Their study underlines the pivotal importance of parental support in infant belief and that if you believe, anything can sprout wings and fly, even the tooth fairy. It's always poetic. Mm, I know. <laughs> There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening. Yeah, we'll catch you next time in the new year, I guess. In the new year. Well, on behalf of me, I'm not sure for hmm. Amy, but I <laughs> certainly enjoyed podcasting this year. It's been me a too. really fun adventure and thank you to everyone who's listened. Yeah. Uh, it, is, it has been sort of something that has been a good anchor. Absolutely. To do. And uh, we look forward to doing it in the new year. We'll probably take a couple of weeks off. Yeah. But just check your feed every now and then and we will... See you back with a vengeance. Yeah, thanks very much. See you, bye. See ya. Experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things. It's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see. As it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of